Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis this morning? We'll be back in Genesis chapter 1 in just a few moments. I'm not starting over in Genesis, by the way, but we will review some things from that text here momentarily. As we enter the month of February, we are entering a season of some serious change. You all who have been with us now the last few weeks know that we are now in the process of making several major changes as a church. I and my family will soon be transitioning to another ministry in another state. And the deacons are leading all of you through changes that will affect the future of the church following my family's transition. These are no small changes, obviously. Uh, These are actually huge changes. And in my experience, when seasons of change comes, it is not strange to hear people think and then say out loud things like, why change at all? Why change? They might be asking something like, well, why why spend the time that it takes to do all of this? Why expend the energy? Why deal with all the potential problems? Why go through the headache? Why risk the heartache? Why put yourself and others through something so hard? In other words, I think we're asking things like this, is change really worth it? I mean, all the struggle that comes with change, is it, is it worth it? Maybe we might go as far as to ask something like this, is change even a good God-honoring thing? Because my experience has been, there are many Christians who have convinced themselves change is always bad. Change is just bad. It can't be good. Friends, I think if we face facts, we would have to admit that most people don't like change. Understandably so. We don't don't like change. We don't like the discomfort that comes with being stretched. We don't like the pressure that comes with being pressed out of our comfort zone. So what do we do? We, We settle into patterns that are the least likely to upset the status quo. We do that which is just normal, and we're comfortable there. We get used to things the way we like them. We get comfortable in our routines. And if we're not careful, we can actually end up going through life giving little to no thought at all to why we do the things that we do. Why do we do what we do? What what is the church? Why do we worship? Why do we gather? Why do we gather and sit and listen to one guy talk and then spend time together and do all the things that we do? Why do we do what we do? The fact of the matter is that a lot of us probably aren't even thinking about those questions at all anymore because it's just what we do. We get up at the same time every Sunday morning. We show up at the same place every Sunday morning. We carry the same book every Sunday morning. We sit in the same seat every Sunday morning. We talk to the same people every Sunday morning. And it's just got to be like that and keep being like that, right? It's Why? Are are we even thinking about the, the whys behind the whats? Could I say this to you? And I don't want to say it in such a way that I hope we understand and embrace it. It's a foundational reality of life. Friends, change is part of life. Change is part of life. In fact, I would go as strong, uh, say it as strongly as this. Change is actually built into God's design for each and every one of us. And if you and I have the category in our thinking that change is bad, then we're going to have a really hard time with most of Scripture. 
if we believe that change is necessarily a bad thing. You see, to, to help us get our thinking wrapped around this subject, and, and my goal is just to really give us a category to think biblically within in the, these weeks that we're now working on, the things that we're working on as a church, I, I want to give you three, three truths to wrestle with this morning. And we're not going to get to dive deeply into any of them. They're going to kind of be some surveys of some categories in Scripture that I want, I want us to think biblically about. I want us to wrestle with what the Word says so that hopefully, at least on, in this area, in this category, we're thinking more rightly than we naturally think. Because we tend to be people who just get into ruts. You know what ruts are, right? It's the, where the wagon wheel always went down the same place in the road, or the tire goes down the same place in the road, and it wears a rut. And, I, and we get stuck in ruts. You can't get your wheels out of ruts. And I once heard that ruts really nothing more than a grave with the ends knocked out. We're just waiting to die. When we get stuck and we cannot fathom or consider anything differently from how it's been, we're not thinking rightly. I want you to consider these three thoughts this morning and we'll, we'll work through them one at a time. Change is God's design for His creation. Friends, change is God's design for His people. And applying it to our situation right now, friends, change is God's design for His church. I want you to think with me about this biblically. So let's consider the first of these. Change is God's design for His creation. It's God's design for His creation. I ask you to go to Genesis chapter 1 because from the opening verses of the Scriptures, we see this plainly illustrated for us. You don't have to read far. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, it's good like it is. Just let it be as it's been. Right? He looked on it, and all is good as is. No. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Friends, the, the, the language of change is over these first verses, and we, we see this throughout the, the Scripture. This language of change keeps showing up. Change from nothing to something. Change from emptiness to fullness. Change from darkness to light. We see the language of change all over the text of the creation story. This change continues in this realm of creation further and further as you study. Consider the language of God's instruction to the first humans. What did, he, what did He say to them in chapter 1, verse 27? Look at that with me. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, stay just like you are. Stay just where you are. Stay the number that you are. No. Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. Hey, what does he say? Don't just eat one thing. Eat all of it. I've given all of it to you as food. Once again, the language of change is all over this part of the text. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. I've given you every plant that yields seed. This is God's design for His creation. There's another text in Genesis, I think, that helps bring this home for us. In Genesis chapter 8, you got your Bible there. Genesis chapter 8, we find the language in the story of Noah. You see, after the waters of the flood had receded, we read in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now look at verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not Cease. 
Do you see the language of divinely designed change that's recorded here? Verse 22, it's all that verse is. It's a verse of change. And the promise of continuing change as long as the earth remains. What did he say? Seed time and harvest. You don't put seeds in the ground and they stay. They grow, they produce fruit, and then you actually harvest things. This is change. Uh, Cold and heat, you watch the seasons change. Summer and winter, you watch this change. Day and night, you see the change. What does he say? This is how I've designed my creation. It is going to be patterns of change consistently. All of life's going to be change for you. Nothing's going to just stay the same. There are a myriad of ways, friends, that change is built into the created order. I was thinking about this as I was getting ready. The seasons, we're we're watching. I mean, we haven't had much of a winter, but we're in that time. And we've even watched the weather change consistently through winter already. The seasons are changed. The, The ocean tides change. The weather patterns change. The amount of daylight changes. The the growth of living things is changed. The multiplication of living things is changed. The process of aging, the process of healing, the process of erosion, the process of adaptation. We could go on and on and on and on. The earth, the creation is filled with change. And we're thankful for it, aren't we? I hurt my hand the other day. I'm glad that wound isn't still laying open. It's changing for the better. Praise God. If you think all change is bad, friends, we've got to rethink this. Because change in and of itself is not the problem. God has designed change right into His creation. And change is an unmistakable and unrelenting part of His design for His creation. But friends, not only is God's design for His creation change, but secondly, change is God's design for His his people. His people. You see, in much the same way that the creation works, it's also vital that we understand the fact that from start to finish, the Christian life is absolutely full of change. And praise God, it is. Just think about this. Consider the language of the New Testament. You see, from the very start, our salvation is described as a a profound change or transformation. Colossians chapter 1, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and left us there. No, changed us, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, every one of those verbs in that text, every one of those descriptions is a change, a glorious change attached to our salvation. Again, we see salvation described in similar terms elsewhere. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been left in your misery and desolation. No. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My friends, that's change. That's eternity altering change. And it's wonderful. And yet there's something in the human heart that naturally thinks that change is bad. But change is glorious if we understand it biblically. Once we've been saved, friends, we are then commanded to, uh, given command after command, in fact, to, to change, to not remain the same. To not remain the same in our thinking, to not remain the same in our understanding, to not remain the same in our growth, to not remain the same in our holiness, to not remain the same in anything. We are to constantly and consistently and thoroughly be changing. Think about it. We're told to put off the old man. To be renewed in our minds, to change our minds and to put on the new man. Ephesians chapter 4, and Colossians spells it out as well. This pattern of biblical change, it's actually the means by which God sanctifies His people. And sanctification in itself is change. 
We're told to add a whole list of virtues to our faith, right? Second Peter chapter 1, he tells us, add to your faith virtue, and he goes on through the list of things that are there. And if we were to think wrongly about this, once you have faith, it's all you need. You don't need a change. Change the way you talk, change the way you live, change the way you value, change what you do. No, but Peter says plainly, add to your faith these things and change is necessary for your confidence that you're even converted. He tells us in that text. We're told to be transformed rather than conformed to this world. Romans chapter 12. He says, you don't float along, you don't stay static, you don't let the world's current just take you where it wants to take you and force you into its mold and make you what it wants you to be. No, you by the changing of your mind are being transformed to become more like Jesus and less like you. Wow, this is actually glorious change that he calls us to be partakers of. We're told to grow in the the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice he says this. You don't know enough about him. And you are not enough like him yet. Neither am I. He doesn't say stick with what you know. He says keep growing in what you know. And growing in your likeness to him. Friends, this list is by no means exhaustive. We know that. We could go on and on and on. Commands like these are found everywhere in the New Testament. Change is everywhere. I absolutely love the way that Paul explains the the change that takes place in the life of a true believer through salvation and then sanctification. These are words that bring tears to our eyes when we're thinking, when we're honest about who we are and what we were and what He's making us, right? We, we, we know this language. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what does He say? Or, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there are a couple of responses that can come from such a list, right? One, they can strike fear in the heart of one who is engaged in these behaviors. Wow, wait a second. If I'm marked by these things, I will not inherit the kingdom of God? But I've also watched another reaction from some when we read a list like this. They go, whew, glad that's not me. If it's not you, why is it not you? Because you're, you're good? You're, 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 as you are? You've always been? No, keep reading. And such were some of you. But how did you not be that anymore? How how, how did you you go from being that to being what you now are? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were changed. Because you were that. You're not that anymore. This is glorious change. Friends, don't, don't, don't stick with the thinking that this world has that change in and of itself is necessarily bad. Change is change. It can be for the worse. But the Bible is filled with the fact that it is the design of God for the betterment of His people. The glory of His name. I have to ask is, do we have the category in our thinking that says, you know what, I'm going to think rightly and biblically about change? Or have I made up my mind, and nobody's going to convince me otherwise, change is bad. Change is bad. Friends, let me ask you, do you understand the fact that every bit of the instruction that we've just been talking about, everything that we've just been talking about at this point, is God-commanded and God-enabled change? That's, that's what we're talking about. In fact, when you sum it all up, the Christian life is made up of change. From the conversion of a soul to the sanctification of that person to ultimately the glorification of one, all of it is change. 
In fact, the Bible is unmistakably clear about the fact that the change designed by God for the Christian continues to take place in us all the way through our entire Christian experience until the day of our glorification, our entrance into glory one day. In fact, this is exactly the word the Apostle Paul uses for it. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay, so what's, what's the solution? I mean, if I, I can't inherit the kingdom of God like I am, then, then how would I ever inherit the kingdom? We shall not all sleep, but a few of us will be changed. The ones who like it and accept it. No, we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Friends, from the start of your experience with Christ to the glorification of you in eternity, all of it is a process of change. And yet there's still something in the natural heart that wants to sit back and go, I hate change. Change is bad. It's always bad. It's never good. Don't like change. Don't want change. Don't. I get it. I, I get it. But I have to ask, are we thinking biblically? Are we thinking Christianly? Are we thinking as the people of God submitted to the Word of God, being moved in and worked over by the Spirit of God? You see, just as it's true for God's creation, change is an unmistakable and unrelenting part of God's design for His, His people. We, we see it plainly. And like I told you, we, we're only scratching the surface. But, but this is true all over the Word. So change is God's design for His creation and change is God's design for His people. Thirdly, friends, change is God's design for His church. For His church. You see, just like the Bible is clear about change in creation and change in God's people, it is equally clear about change in the church. Let's follow the reasoning for a moment. One of the most familiar New Testament texts about the church is Christ's personal promise to do something with His church. To build His church. He says in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, on this rock I will build my church. Now let me ask you, what is the word build in this text intended to suggest to us about the nature of the church? Is it merely that Jesus maintains the status quo of his church? Or is it far more Clearly, he is not merely maintaining the status quo of what he's doing in his people in the world. In fact, we know he's doing far more as he builds up his saints. The Apostle Paul's instruction to husbands based upon what he's doing in his church sounds like this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved and he gave himself up for his church to what end? Next verse. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. Does that sound like simple maintenance? No, that's an overhaul. That's change. That's purification. By the washing of water with the word. 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, friends, we understand the fact that there are many expressions of the the local church, but the church that he is building, the church he will present to himself, is so much more than its local expressions. It is the whole of what he is doing in his people on the earth. He works with His Word to make us as a people without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, could you pause for a moment and just think back to the last week of your life? This last week. The last six or seven days. Would that last six or seven days, could it honestly by you be described, and you'd stand up and say, yes, that's me, as your life was without spot or wrinkle or any such thing? Then I have to ask the question, is he finished with you yet? Or is whatever he is doing in you and in me with his word in the situations of our life, accomplishing a purpose, he is still working in us. And I would argue, friends, that this work of the word in our lives through the hardest situations of our lives, is still being done even now. And it will continue in the weeks and the months and the years to come. Even though we will see change. You say, how can you be so confident that that's the case, Pastor? Well, Consider Paul's, Paul's words to the Philippians in which he makes it plain that Christ always completes the work he begins in his people. He doesn't leave things half done. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you I might get around to tinkering with it a bit more in some time. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to start changing you and not finish the work. He's not going to start changing me and not finish the work. He's going to finish what He starts. And I have to ask us, Is that Hallmark card rhetoric? Or is that truth? Because the fact of the matter is we get in the middle of hard times and we get in the middle of seasons where we don't really like what lies in front of us and the next thing you know, we're not sure that this stuff is true anymore. And I want to say to you, friends, this is absolutely true. And the very things through which he is leading us right now are means by which, with his word, he is making us what he wants us to be. We are in the process of being changed. Even as we are navigating change together ourselves. There are certainly ways in which God does not intend for His church to change. That we are to remain the same. Jude 3 is plain about this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He doesn't want our belief to change, the truth and the doctrine that we hold to to change. No, At the same time, however, it cannot be argued that God does not also intend for His church to change in ways that are making us more like Jesus and less like us. That's why the hymn writer has written, and we've echoed in the past in the song, change your church, O God, to be more the church you long to see. We pray this, don't we? Father, do what it takes to glorify yourself in us. And then he does. And we don't like it. 
I've got to ask you, friends, do you believe that what God is leading you through is a means of his good work of sanctifying you? To be what he wants you to be. And he wants me to be. For the glory of his name. You see, friends, change is clearly God's design, even in his church. I told you my goal this morning is to give you a category in your thinking. I want you to wrestle with how you think about this thing we call change. Friends, now, the title of the sermon is clear. Change may be necessary, but it's hard. And nothing that I shared with you did I say that, this, that the Lord says that all of this is going to be easy. And that it's going to be painless. In fact, as you study the scriptures, you find the Lord using language like the language of, of pruning. Cutting away things from our lives so that there might be more and better growth. That's a painful process. There are waters he takes his people through, like the death of loved ones, things we might not even ever think to ask for. And yet, what does he say of his own? It focuses our attention on the resurrection. And we, yes, sorrow, but we don't sorrow, what does he say? Hopelessly. We sorrow differently. It's still sorrowful. It's still sad. It's still painful. But it's not hopeless. It's not joyless. It's not bad. And I have to ask, do we have in our minds a means or a mechanism by which we wrestle through the hard things? Because hard things come and, and we find our lives shaking and we, we don't like it. And, and so how do we stabilize ourselves in the midst of life when it's changing? Having said all that I've said to you so far this morning, I just want to kind of bring some things to a conclusion over the next few minutes by, by, by giving you a couple of governing principles that I think we have to wrestle with. If we're going to go about change together as a church and as individuals and families as we ought, then we have to think rightly. And one thing I would sound as a warning to us is this. First of all, friends, stability for our souls is not to be found in stability in this life. Stability for our souls is not found in stability in this life. I will be stable as long as nothing changes. I will stay confident as long as there are no hardships. I'll follow as long as it doesn't cost me too much. I'll follow as long as it doesn't hurt too much. I'll follow as long as I don't have too many losses. I'll follow as long as what? I can be comfortable and have the status quo. Right? Stability in our souls must not come from stability in this life. Or friends, then we would never have stability in our souls. Because we just consider the scriptures that life is actually made up of change. You see, the reason I think that so many people in our day dislike change is because we believe that our stability of soul actually comes from stability in life. I don't know about you, but I just, this is how it works in my, in my life. I mean, because it, it seems to come in waves, right? So, so you, you have one frustration, and then you find out you've got a nail in your tire on the way home from work, and then you get home, and then they tell you, well, the faucet's now leaking, and then, and then something's broken on the back porch, and then, well, you know what? I got shingles that are off the roof, and, 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 and now what I'm saying, I, my, my brain goes into this, this mindset it's not another thing! Not another thing! I'm done! Wow, that sounds like Jesus, right? And the stuff I just named, like none of that is like earth-shattering stuff. It's just annoyances, right? And if I react like that over the annoyances of change, 
then no wonder I shut down and shove people away when big stuff comes. And I got to ask us, how do we handle change? Because if we are so unsettled when life just gets shaken a little bit, then what happens when life is shaking a lot? Like the ground beneath our feet is giving way and nothing feels secure right now and I'm not sure there's another step I can take where the, the ground beneath me won't crumble. What is going to happen to my soul then if I can't handle a loose shingle and a leaky faucet and a flat tire on the same day? And I want to say to us, our heart responses to change reveal what we're believing It reveals what we're thinking. It reveals what we're anchored to. As we've clearly seen this morning, friends, we cannot anchor ourselves to an unchanging life because change is part of God's design for our lives. The stability of our souls cannot come from stability in our lives for this life will always be changing. The second principle I would give you then is this, friends. Stability for our souls must be found in the stability of our God. Because He never changes. Our life always changes. Our God never does. Friends, the scriptures are clear that everything created, everything created is changing and will continue to change. But the scriptures are equally as clear about the fact that the creator does not change. In Malachi chapter 3, we read some comforting words from God to his people. He says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Wow! What is he saying? If I reacted to changes like you react to changes, I would have consumed you a long time ago. (laughs) How did I tell you I react to just little inconveniences and annoyances in my life? I'm not going to take it anymore. What if God was like me? What if God was like you? He would have crushed you into oblivion a long time ago. He would have consumed you with the fires of his wrath. But the reason that God's people aren't consumed, as flaky as we are, is because God doesn't change. I am the Lord and I do not change. That's why you are still breathing. Wow. Friends, that is a comfort to my soul. You know the language of Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. My Savior, your Savior does not change. That's why we can have confidence. Everything around us may be changing. The ground beneath our feet may be quaking. The the house around us may be falling in. The people we've known and trusted may abandon us. We may find ourselves in the hardest of situations, but our Christ doesn't change. And our souls are not just secure today. And they're not just secure tomorrow. But they are secure forever and ever and ever Because He is the same. He never moves away. He never gets a job transfer. He never runs out of money. He never comes to the end of His patience. Nor of His grace. He's the same 
And if you and I are looking to the people around us to be the same forever and ever, we will always be disappointed. And if we are looking for a certain amount in our bank account to always be the same, we will always be disappointed. And if we are thinking our address must always remain the same, or our our organization must always stay the same, or this or that or the other must always stay the same, then friends, we will always be disappointed. This is why I say our stability of soul does not come from stability in life, but it must come from the stability of our God. And I would argue that it is the changelessness of God that gives strength, that gives stability to His people when everything we know is changing all around us. In fact, we find this in the Scriptures. I've read this to you in the past. I want to read this text to you again. Habakkuk chapter 3, we find a fascinating passage. God has brought judgment. Armies are invading. Israel is being assaulted. Life as they've known it is not the same, and the prophet is looking at life, and he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Okay, what's he picturing? He said, everything I've known and counted on can't be counted on anymore. I plant fig trees, and guess what? They don't blossom. There's no food on them. I planted vines, expecting there to be grapes. There's no grapes this year. I've planted olive trees. There's no olives. I've planted fields of crops. And guess what? The locusts have come and eaten all my crops before the the fruit has come out in the fields. I have no harvest. We would just say uh, Food Lion and uh, Harris Teeter and Publix all go out of business on the same day. And they're all closed. And my pantry's empty. And everything I've always counted on, I cannot count on. There is no food. There's no food in the pantry. There's no food in the grocery store. There's nowhere to find it. I, I, I find that even the flock, uh, uh, you know, the, the meat, the, the, the sheep, or the other things that I've raised so that we can eat, they're gone. I have nothing I can count on. So how does the child of God in that situation respond? Well, I guess I'll just give up. It's hopeless. Though all of this is happening, the prophet said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Friends, when life is changing... And everything you've always leaned on is no longer there to lean on. And everything you've always counted on, you can no longer count on. How do you respond? What does your heart say? What comes out of your mouth? Oh, my friend... We must respond in the truth of our God and rejoice. For He does not change. And He will be our strength. When we have none of our own and no one around us to lean on, He will be the strength Of his people. The Apostle Paul could state this perfect reality, his own contentment in any and all circumstances with similar confidence. You know, you know this language. Philippians chapter 4, what do we read there? Not, Paul says, that I am speaking, with, uh, 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 speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to grumble and complain. I know how to complain with the best of them. Well, as long as situations are good, I know how to be content. No, 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 no. Look at the combination of language here. In whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. 
Paul's, most of us are more proficient at one or the others of these, and I would say we tend to be more proficient at the latter. Oh, I know how to abound. I know how to rejoice when the checks are coming in. I know how to rejoice when everything's going my way. I know how to rejoice when it's all green lights and and there are no nails in the tires. I know how to abound, yes. Do we know how to be brought low and still rejoice? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. How in the world, Paul? Paul, how in the world can you face any and all circumstances and you're, you're like just steady, you're, you're, you're consistent, you're even, you're not up and down and up and down and up and down. How in the world can you think like that and respond like that to the trials and the difficulties of life? Verse 13, we all know how to quote this and this is not a verse for like basketball player shoes. This is a verse for churches like ours in weeks like these. I can do all things. What are those all things? Plenty and want. Abounding and loss. The glorious days and the terrible trials. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I've got to ask. My friend, are you strong today? Are you being strengthened today? Not because life's all good. Not because things aren't hard. Not because you haven't received any news recently that you didn't want to receive. But because in the middle of all of that, your God hasn't changed. He is your strength. Not your friends. Not your pastor. Not just our gathering. He is your strength. Therefore, you can do all things through Him who strengthens you. Even as I say this, I acknowledge that this is not something that I've mastered. There are still plenty of situations where I find my own heart waffling and having to come back to Him and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But this morning, I wanted to come to all of us in the season that we're in, and I wanted to ask us, how are we thinking? What are the categories of mind and of life that we have so that as we come through these situations, we can think biblically and live rightly so that He is glorified? And we're not being glory thieves by making it all about us in the middle of everything else that's going on. No, this is still all about Him. All of it. All of life is all about God. So are we thinking like that? Are we speaking like that? Are we encouraging one another like that? Because friends, change is hard. And guess what? Even after everything I've said, I'm going to tell you this. Change will keep being hard. (laughs) But it's necessary. How? Do we stabilize our souls in the midst of changes we would have never asked for? It's not by insisting on our own way. It's not by demanding that everything be done just so I I, I can be made happy and comfortable. No, that's not how we stabilize our souls. The way we stabilize our souls in changes we would have never asked for is by running to our God and acknowledging all of life might be changing, but He is not. And I find my strength in the God of my salvation who changes not. He strengthens And as we do so, friends, we can sing with the heartbeat of the hymn writer Horatius Bonar who wrote these words. We'll close with this. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be, 
Lead me by thine own hand. Choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be or rough. It will be still the best. Winding or straight, it leads right onward to thy rest. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God. So shall I walk aright. Take thou my cup, and it with joy or sorrow fill. As best to thee may seem, choose thou my good and ill. Choose thou for me, my friends, my sickness or my health. Choose thou my cares for me, my poverty or wealth. Not mine, not mine the choice in things both great and small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. May that be the heart, and may that be the prayer of each of us in hard seasons of change, trusting our God who changes not. Father, thank you for your word. If left to ourselves, our hearts, our hearts drift and they wander and they resist and they fight. But you are God. And we are not. And so our hearts cry like the hymn writer. Be thou our guide, our strength our wisdom, and our all. Would you please work in us to the end that you might receive the glory and we might in time know the good of what you're doing even when we may not yet see the light at the end of the tunnel. So Father, may we think biblically in the midst of the changes of life. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.